Greetings, Tyndale community. It's with great pleasure and humbleness that I get to share with you today about one of my favorite sequences of texts in the book of Psalms, Psalm 7 and 8. Many of us have been taught to read the Psalms one at a time, focusing on the genre of a Psalm, whether that is a petition, lament, praise, or thanksgiving, and reading it as a self-contained unit. Here, each of the 150 psalms make their own individual contributions to Scripture, but little consideration is given to how each fits within the book of Psalms as a whole. In recent studies of the psalms, however, and reaching back into the long history of interpretation, scholars have begun to consider once again how psalms might relate to their neighbors. How might the juxtaposition of psalms affect their interpretation? As one psalm leads into the next, can we pick up on different themes or threads in order to create a kind of movement between them? This is a very different way of thinking about the Psalms. Instead of treating them as a hymn book of ancient Israel, the book is read more like the rest of Scripture. In this way, we get to pick up on a development of thoughts, a parallelism of sorts between Psalms that we might otherwise miss. What I would like to do in our time together is reflect on how the movement between Psalms 7 and 8 offers us a fascinating glimpse into what it means to lament. What we discover, I think, is that King David is leading us through not simply a school of prayer, but a school of lament. He is teaching us how to pray in light of a life marked by remarkable suffering, even if some of it was due to his own action. The past few months have brought these realities of suffering to the surface in national, continental, and even worldwide conversations. Whether it comes from illness or isolation or financial burden connected to the coronavirus or to racial tensions that have come front and center springing out of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, this feels like an important season of reckoning within the church and society as a whole. Conversations about racial justice have been simmering for decades, and at least one good that has emerged from the whirlpool of 2020 is that we are forced to address them. At the same time, the confluence of so much distinct, complex dialogue can feel a bit overwhelming. We might be tempted to throw up our hands in frustration, some may even appeal to historical precedent. Looking back over church history, for instance, there have been many seasons equal to and much worse than our own. When has there ever been a time without political unrest, without threats to public health, and without racial or national tensions? The people groups have changed, certainly, but the social and religious contexts are not so different than our own. So while all this mental and physical effort amount to any real substantive change at a societal level, or even at a church level, if such seasons have always existed, what's the point? Might it be better just to turn off the news, take a deep breath, put our heads down, and zone out until all this is over? The short answer, I think, is no, <laughs> it is not better. As I hope to show, such a response not only disregards the legitimate indignation and anger expressed by our friends and neighbors, 
but it also goes against the grain of how Scripture envisions judgment and justice taking place within the church and within society. We cannot simply filter out that which makes us uncomfortable, especially if that which makes us uncomfortable are the cries from the systematically oppressed and downtrodden, cries that often go unheeded. In the early chapters of Exodus, we have this wonderful description of God looking down from the heavens and hearing the cries, groans, and distressed tears of the Israelites as they were put to hard labor by the Egyptians. If we are to live as Christ, we must listen as God listens and discern as God discerns to the best of our ability. So why the Psalms in this conversation? And specifically, why Psalms 7 and 8? To begin, I would say that the Psalms are important here because lament is crucial in this conversation from a divine perspective. Going back to Exodus, what moves God to action is not the hard labor of the Israelites, but their laments and their cries of distress. And if that is what moves God to bring about justice, then the Psalms are particularly attuned to our own situation in life dominated as they are with psalms of lament. But the Exodus moment also shows us that lament, and prayer more generally, are not primarily about your own personal walk with God. It is not a predominantly private endeavor, a closeted conversation between you and God, where you can complain about your enemies and try to cope with trials and personal problems. In the Psalms of Lament, for instance, the psalmist will often take a break from prayer and speak directly to those who are accusing him of wrongdoing or undercutting the honor that God has given him as a covenant partner. So lament is a public thing, public in the uncomfortable sense of looking someone directly in the eye and hearing them cry out to God about sins you have participated in which have affected them sins of commission and sins of omission. But it's also public in the courageous sense that someone is willing to stand up to their enemies before God and before their entire community. A great example of this is given in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. We read, If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. Here in Solomon's dedication of the temple, in the midst of his own public prayer, he enumerates several opportunities when God would hear the prayers of the people. Many Old Testament scholars read this text as a description of the ritual by which God would judge between two parties, presumably through the intervention of a prophet or a priest. A sin had occurred, and both parties are claiming to be in the right. Both are made to swear an oath before the altar of the temple, likely an oath of self-imprecation, much like one will read in Psalm 7. Divine providence would then bring about justice, with the guilty, quote, bringing his conduct on his own head. In this situation, prayer is public both men taking the oath before the altar, in front of friends, family, neighbors, officials, and, of course, God. And God would show his providential justice in a public manner, 
bringing misfortune on the guilty and clearing the innocent. Some psalm scholars, like myself, think that Psalm 7 is directly connected to this ritual of justice in 1 Kings 8, and may in fact have been the actual prayer spoken at that situation. In the book of Psalms, however, that prayer has been put on the lips of King David, allowing us to reflect on the meaning of justice, righteousness, and wickedness in the context of David's life, specifically his experiences with Saul and with his son Absalom. Taken together, Psalms 7 and 8 have a special role to play in teaching us how to lament through injustice, oppression, and accusation. They teach us the foundations of God's concern for the weak, the poor, and the downtrodden, and they show us how to pray based on those convictions. So let us listen in to these two psalms before we reflect on their instructive qualities. I'll be reading from the ESV translation. Psalm 7. A Shigayon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, then let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger, Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, for you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is within me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Psalm 8 To the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, 
How majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, as I noted at the beginning, it is important to hear these two psalms as coordinated together. Psalm 7 ends with David's intention to sing praise to the name of the Lord due to God's righteousness, praise which he then sings in Psalm 8. In this way, Psalm 8 is almost like a conclusion to Psalm 7. But it also means that Psalm 8 is in some way teaching us something about God's character as a righteous judge. In fact, this is exactly what both these psalms are about. We often read Psalm 8 as a reflection about humanity. The psalmist is in awe about the honor God has given us, especially when compared to the magnificence and breadth of his own glory, which we see every night on display in the heavens. David also reflects on the royal commission God has given humanity within the created order. Recalling Genesis 1, he sees humanity's dominion over creation as reflecting God's own majesty as the sovereign of all creation. But David does not begin his praise with either of these points. Rather, he starts out by ruminating over God's protection of the most vulnerable. Again, we read in verse 2, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. How do these words fit into the bigger picture of our royal commission? We know that they are used in the Gospels when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, but why these words? What do they mean? The Old Testament often uses this image of babies and infants as a metaphor for the poor, weak, and downtrodden in society. And Psalm 8 uses this powerful image to make an important statement about our royal commission of dominion. In ancient society, and I would argue in most of the modern world as well, the only weapon that the poor and downtrodden have are their mouths. David is keen to praise God as a righteous judge, first and foremost because it is through the cries of the helpless that God shows his strength, stilling both of their enemies and avengers. Fulfilling our royal commission, then, is not a matter of reestablishing our place at the top of the food chain or even stewarding the earth correctly, though that is indeed important, but by recognizing the voice of the weak and marginalized as the place of God's strength. Jesus, if you recall, does not identify with human kings and high priests and people of means, but with those who are hungry and need food, those who are thirsty and need drink, those who are strangers and need welcoming, those who are naked and need clothed, those who are sick and need someone to visit with them, and those who are imprisoned and need care. As you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. By neglecting this part of humanity's royal commission, we fail to uphold the honor that God has bestowed upon us. We fail to recognize the image of God within our neighbors. This idea is so important for the book of Psalms that this short moment of praise in Psalm 82 is, I think, foundational for understanding every cry for justice that occurs in the Psalter. If we truly believe that God hears the cry of the weak, then we too must, especially as the church, hear them as well. Christ is crying out to us in their voices. These words also remind us about the necessity of voicing our own lament, that is, the primary way in which God is a fortress for the weak is through the public voicing of lament. And this connects us back to Psalm 7. So what's the connection? 
If Psalm 8 concludes Psalm 7 by allowing David to voice his praise of God's name, noting the important foundation of lament for the establishing of justice, then we can read Psalm 7 as an instructive example of what lament looks like. Indeed, one of the primary purposes of Psalm 7 within Scripture is to teach us about how to pray to God as the righteous judge. So Psalm 7 opens with a superscription which places the psalm within a specific historical context. A shigayon of David which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. This title is mysterious on a couple of levels. First, scholars have no clue what shigayon means, though there are some good guesses. The most common explanation is that it refers to a more forceful lament, or perhaps a lament sung due to the subversion of expectations. Voiced by the figure of David, this special lament, for a lack of a better translation, has also been given a point of reference connected to David's life. To understand this, we need to compare it to another historical reference in Psalm 3. There, the title reads, A Psalm of David when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. It wants us to hear the psalm as if David were praying it during Absalom's rebellion. Psalm 7, however, has a different verbal time frame. David is not praying this psalm in the midst of an event, but in retrospect, looking back at an event. But what event is it? We have no idea. <laughs> David strives against Benjaminites most of his life, whether Saul and 1 Samuel or those surrounding Absalom in 2 Samuel, but none of them are named Cush. In my opinion, the editors of the Psalter have been purposefully ambiguous here, allowing this psalm to take on a more reflective quality. I see David later in life, looking back over times of trial and summarizing his experience with a psalm like this one. In doing so, David is offering the psalm as a kind of instructive prayer, teaching us how to take our refuge in God's providential righteous justice. So how does he do that? First, David begins by putting his faith in God to deliver him. Right, the first two verses, if you have your Bibles open, right, look to uh, God as David's refuge. Uh, he prays that God would save him from his pursuers and deliver him, uh, lest they overtake him and uh, ren render his soul in pieces. But before uh, David actually prays for God to bring about this justice against those who are hunting him down, he offers this self-imprecation, right? And he says in verses three to five, O Lord, my God, if I have done this, right? If there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Now, this is the kind of oath mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 8 that we looked at earlier. But curiously, at no point in David's life does he offer such a prayer within the temple. Indeed, the temple didn't even exist yet. Right? So the editors of the Psalter have done something uh, curious here. Right? They've helped us understand something about justice by using David and David's life as a vehicle through which we can learn how to pray this prayer of lament. And the first thing that God teaches us through David is that we need to be careful when we pray against our enemies. If you ever wish to say one of these prayers yourself, you need to begin with self-reflection. You need to be willing to accept the possibility that you could be in the wrong, and if so, that God can bring about the justice you are praying 
against yourself. <laughs> right? it, it reminds us that the true scales of justice are in God's eyes, and it is something that should cause us to pause. But then David uh, takes us to this prayer for justice and teaches us how to approach God, who is the judge of all. And so if you have your Bible again open and you're looking at verses 8 to 11, what you'll notice is that when David uh, begins to approach God, he begins again, uh, not with these imprecations against his pursuers, but for God to bring about true justice, right? He says, judge me according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is within me. David is not claiming his own righteousness here, nor his own integrity but for God to pull him apart and to test him. Hebrews 4 verses 12 and 13 are true for David as they are true for us. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So if David is found to have been innocent here, then he prays for God to establish uh, him as righteous. If he is not, then let the evil of the wicked one come to an end. David clearly hopes that he is in the right and that when God does bring justice, he will be found in the right. Verse 11 is important here as it declares that God is a judge who makes righteous judgments and that God is not indifferent to injustice, but feels indignation every day. The psalm then moves on in verses 12 to 16 to teach us how to pray for God to judge our enemies. And again, uh, just look through this uh, with your Bible so that I don't have to read it again. <laughs> uh, but the imagery begins with David picturing God as a warrior, prepared to wage war against the wicked. But as we continue on, what we find is that God will actually bring about justice by providential means rather than by some miraculous scene of divine intervention. There is a divine irony at work similar to what we see with Haman in the book of Esther. His mischief returns upon his own head and upon his own skull, his violence descends. Now, this happens to Nabal, for example, in 1 Samuel 25, and it also happens, coincidentally, to Absalom, who dies by his glorious hair getting caught up in a tree. And it also happens to uh, this guy named Shammai, a, ben a Benjaminite, whose beheading is anticipated in 1 Samuel 16.9. Indeed, that particular scene is very instructive here, as David waits for God's providence and learning the truth of Shammai's words of cursing against him, right? Shammai's imprecations against David. And here's what David says, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite? Leave him alone and let him curse, for God has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. And as we read on in the story, we find out that uh, the Lord takes the side of David in this war against Absalom. But this is not where David actually begins. If you look back at verse 12, he actually begins his lament, uh, being heard by his accusers and pursuers, and all divine judgment being stilled 
through repentance. This, I think, is the true heart of lament and gives us a clear understanding of Psalm 8-2. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. The strength of lament is its power to lead the guilty into repentance and through repentance, the ending not only of vengeance, but of being an enemy. This is why the public nature of lament is so important and why we need to be a church who both gives space for these laments in our public meetings and actually hears them in the practice of repentance and reconciliation. Now, there's so much more that could be said here about these things, uh, but let us end here with David's vow to praise God, anticipating the justice he will continue to bring about through the laments of his people. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. May we be a church that practices such justice. May God bless you and keep you this day and in the days to come. Amen.